This week on the Backtable Podcast. For me, it it 100% has changed the way I treat these because in the past it was get across, try and make a channel with angioplasty. If it's acute, then you can do some kind of lytic therapy or thrombectomy. But for the chronic stuff, it was just getting across angioplasty and then relining, not really getting much luminal gain. It's all about having a good lumen at the end, a good lumen size. And what this device allows me, allows you to do is to achieve that. So I, I use this in 100% of my stent occlusion cases now. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The RevCore thrombectomy catheter by Inari Medical is the first mechanical thrombectomy device for venous stent thrombosis. Dr. Abramowitz and Dr. Marino discuss how patients suffering from symptoms of venous stent failure now, for the first time, have a solution to remove instant thrombosis to restore flow and possibly reduce the need for additional reintervention. Now, back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. My guests today are Dr. Angela Marino, Assistant Professor in Interventional Radiology at Yale, and Dr. Stephen Abramowitz, Chair of Vascular Surgery for MedStar Hospital System. Our topic today is treating venous stent rethrombosis with emphasis on the Inari RevCore device. Doctors Marino and Abramowitz, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yep, thanks for having us. Before we get into the meat of our topic, I'd love for each of you to tell me a little bit about the practice that you're in right now. Dr. Marino, let's start with you. Sure. So I work at the academic center at Yale. It's pretty busy. We cover about three hospitals. And over the past few years, we've built a pretty strong VTE program addressing both pulmonary embolism and DVT. And so my main focus at Yale is VTE treatment, venous reconstruction, superficial and deep vein disease. We are a pretty busy center. We do about five PE thrombectomies a week and, uh, and several DVT thrombectomies. Dr. Marino, could you give me a little bit of information about the volume of venous thromboembolism cases you see in your practice? Yeah, so we're a fairly busy practice. There's about three or four of us that particularly have a focus in treating DVT, and then there's the whole group that treats PE. For DVT patients, we're treating about, I would say, about 200 a year, and much more uh, PE patients than that. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. Sounds like you're a busy center. And you mentioned that this is a recent development. So are you one of the people that kind of built that up, built that program up? Yeah, I was in prior practice when I trained at Yale, and then I went to prior practice for a few years. I was doing some venous work in prior practice, and then I got recruited back to come back, kind of built their vein program. And it's just in the past few years where we've had these these newer novel devices that allow us to treat more patients it's really taken off and we've been able to kind of help a lot more patients with more chronic disease that we weren't able to target in the past. Very cool. Okay, Dr. Abramowitz, can you tell me a little bit about your practice at MedStar? Yeah, I have the privilege of working at MedStar Health and predominantly I'm at Washington Hospital Center, MedStar Washington Hospital Center. And our nine hospital system is the largest distributed care network in the DMV. So it's the District of Columbia, Northern Virginia and Maryland. We have a very robust VTE practice, and a lot of that has to do with an excellent collaboration that we have with interventional radiology. And we've really worked hard to establish an appropriate care pathway for those patients presenting with both DVT, post-thrombotic syndrome, and other venous embolic events, including pulmonary embolism. 
That's fantastic. And so I reckon you guys probably also place a lot of Venus dents in a year. Can you give me any ideas to the numbers that you see? We do place a lot. I'll caveat this by saying that we are predominantly a post-thrombotic syndrome stenting practice. We do not have a robust nivel practice, and that's a whole other podcast for a whole other day. We probably treat upwards of 300 to 400 people with deep venous intervention, including stenting each year. Now, both of you are at tertiary care centers, academic centers, um, in your case, Dr. Marino. I'm guessing you see a lot of cases of venous stent thrombosis from the community. And can you just run me through the different scenarios that you see which cause venous stent thrombosis? Um, Dr. Marino, we could start with you. Yeah, sure. One of the most common causes that, that we find is when the distal landing zone is not the correct spot where the, where the stent is placed. And then the other is if the stent is undersized or poor overlap or protruding more into the IVC than, than it should be. So th- those are the main things that we find. A lot of these patients have had multiple procedures over the years, and they've had relining of the stents and sometimes poor inflow. And Dr. Abraham, what's anything to add there about how you see these venous stent rethrombosis cases present? Yeah, I can't echo that enough. You know, predominantly, I, I really think back to Human July and a lot of his data and work that he's done looking at inflow disease and an assessment of inflow prior to placing a deep beep stent. And so when we're dealing with post-thrombotic patients or those patients who have had a venous stent placed in the setting of an acute DVT, one of the big things that we see as a predictor or a causal reason for rethrombosis has to do with inflow and really clearing out that landing zone or a segment of disease from the common femoral profunda or femoral vein confluence. How often do you find yourself stenting below the inguinal ligament for post-thrombotic syndrome patient? Dr. Bramowitz, we can start with you this time. Pretty frequently. I think that one of the big things that we see in terms of a leading cause of stent failure is when people are reticent to cross the inguinal ligament, and that stent ends immediately proximal to the ligament itself. And so you end up with a stent almost facing downwards in the vein prior to that external iliac vein, kind of reflecting anteriorly to come up under the ligament. And when you have post-thrombotic scarring there or narrowing of the vessel in conjunction with the anatomic predisposition for the vessel to deform around the stiffer stent, that is a prime reason for rethrombosis. And then when you have poor inflow from either disease, synechii, webbing, or, or residual thrombus burden that's become really collagenated and scarred in at the femoral profunda confluence. That is a low flow state that also predisposes patients to rethrombotic events. Anything to add there, Dr. Marino? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with everything he just said. It's really important to kind of get good inflow and land the stent so that you're in a normal vein or a normal-ish vein as normal as it can get post-thrombectomy or intervention. Well, let's move on to the topic of this podcast, which is the RevCore device. I am familiar with the device, but haven't gotten to use it in clinical practice. Dr. Marina, could you just give me an introduction to the device? Yeah, so the RevCore device, it's a novel thrombectomy device, and it was made to debulk the thrombotic material in venous stents. And the stent size that you can use it in, it ranges, but it's usually from 10 to 20 millimeters. You can also use it in native vessels, which are six millimeters or greater. It works over the wire. And it's a catheter that consists of a coring element that you can expand and you control it on a handle. And what that does is you can basically turn it back and forth clockwise, counterclockwise. You can push it over the wire, forward and backwards. And it really helps to macerate thrombus and pull it off of the stent wall. 
Dr. Abramowitz, um, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, initial case experience with this device? So we've done about 22 cases using the RevCore system since it was released. And I found it to be very effective with patients and some caveats. And, and they aren't negative caveats. It's just this disease process and state generally tends to be more organized, more chronic. We've seen patients with calcium lining their rethrombotic stents. We've seen patients with stent overlap zones where we have deformation of a wall stent, for example, within an abre or another place to be the stent. So no venous stent is more of a culprit than the other. It's just these are all considerations when using the device. And what the device really allows you to do with variable expansion and kind of those three axes of intervention, calculized, counterclockwise, as well as you know, antegrade and retrograde movements, is mobilize that material. And, and initially, when I started using the device, I, I really kind of thought of it as well, this is just an aggressive debulking tool. And I've changed my mentality, which has also changed, I think, the efficacy and my approach, where I think of it more of a lathe or a, uh, yeah, I'm not a cheese person, but what's that? <laughs> There's that cheese knife that kind of shaves off strips of uh, cheese. But when I think about the RevCore system as something that is grinding down or, or slowly eroding and working against this material, it's changed my case flow in terms of both work and that's made me more patient. And that's that's led to, I think, great success in using the device as a tool for removing this material. So what's your access site when you use the device? I'm generally a proponent of popliteal and IJ access. And this is for, for two reasons. One, I think that the popliteal access gives you a really good assessment of the inflow because not only do you want to clear out the material that's thrombosed or organized within the stent itself, but you also want to address any inflow lesions that may have led to stent failure and really diagnose and work on those. Because there are certainly patients where we've put them on the table and I've said, you know, actually, this is not a RevCore candidate because even if we open the stent, the inflow is unsalvageable and the stent is just going to rethrombose. And then from an IJ approach, it really allows you to use a device like the Protrieve sheath to aid in the collection of the material that's mobilized from within the stent. Because when we see what's gathered, it generally tends to be very organized, white, calcified material, uh, collagenated material, and it comes out in large volume pretty quickly. And so that's a protective tool. And kind of the last thing I'll say in there is I have found that my use of the system is more effective and more controlled when I have a wire flossed through and through the patient and really giving somebody the ability to pull the wire on both ends, give a rigidity to the system so that I have the utmost amount of control when engaging an antigrade and retrograde movements has really given me um, kind of the optimal outcome I'm looking for. Dr. Marino, do you usually go through the protrieve sheath to get to the occluded stent, or do you find that popliteal access works best for you too? So I always get popliteal access as well. And what I do is once I have popliteal access, I also make sure that the that the groins and the neck are prepped, and I always get right IJ access for the protrieve sheath. But the uh, groin access sometimes is very useful because when you're going up from the popliteal, you lose some of that support when you're trying to get through these chronically occluded stents. So a lot of times I find myself puncturing directly into the stent with an 18-gauge needle and then using some sharp recanalization to find my way up and then coming down from the IJ through that occluded stent and then connecting down to the pop to get through and through axis. Wow. So these are, I mean, we haven't talked much on this show about, you know, venous CTOs and how we do through and through access for them, but this seems like it's the ideal scenario for it is in a post-thrombotic patient. 
for the uninitiated, what size is the device? What size sheet does it go through? It is a 12 French OD. Well, cool. So it sounds like you can use the RevCore through the IJ Access ProTrieve sheath. And just to be clear, are you guys using ProTrieve for all of these cases? I use the ProTrieve for all of these all of these cases. I am. I have I have used other tools, but it, it goes back to what is the best access for a worst case scenario. And when I have used other systems, I have ultimately converted to the ProTrue sheath for that workability from the IJ for aspiration or restenting or snaring or having a, a dual wired system from the contralateral popliteal as well. Well, since both of you are treating a lot of venous stent thrombosis, could you walk me through your algorithm for how you approach a venous stent thrombosis? Like is RevCore your first go-to device now, or do you have some other troubleshooting tips and tricks you do before you get there? Dr. Marino, let's start with you. You know, the hardest part of these cases usually is crossing the stent, right? So once you establish that, then I use RevCore 100% in these cases. In terms of crossing the stent, there are many different things that we use. I end up most often having to do sharp recanalization, and sometimes I'll have to use like the tip set, or more often than not, because it's probably cheaper, the transjugal liver biopsy cannula to get me through the stent because when you get that dip in the pelvis from the external to the iliac vein, a lot of times the sharp recan will end up wanting to poke out of the stent. And then do you do all of your cases under GA if they're going to be recan cases? For these cases, I do just because they could be a little uncomfortable with the balloons you use and, and the sharp recan, sometimes you perforate out and, and they take time prepping all the different sites and getting the accesses and, and crossing the occluded stents can take some time. So I personally do them all under GA. You guys alluded to this earlier, but just to clarify, when you're doing your popliteal access, it seems like the patients are supine, and so you're doing them all with a uh, frog leg. Is that right? Yeah. And I think the interesting thing for me in, in hearing about different anesthesia techniques and different access options is it's made me really think about how the patient's presenting. For a lot of these patients, if they present with an acute change in their symptoms, that's some sort of indication to me that they may have had chronic instant thrombotic disease and then suddenly had an acute event. That's the type of patient where I may lice them first or make some other mechanical thrombectomy solution or retolytic therapy to really evaluate what's happening within the stent from a chronic standpoint prior to engaging in the use of something like RevCore. For those patients who are presenting with a wound and you know they walk into your office and they're like, I've had this stent for 20 years and I've never looked at it again. Most likely, that's a, that's a different algorithm. But you know, what's been surprising to me is I used to kind of from the start say, "Well, this is just going to be a honker of a day." Dive in with general and you know, block out you know four to six hours. And I've become much more open to the idea of the recanalization or the assessment of the stent being potentially a separate intervention or a separate procedure from the RevCore or from the use of, a, of another tool to treat the chronic instant disease. So how do you stage that procedure? Because once you've crossed your stent, if you leave it alone, won't it just re-thrombose? Absolutely. And so it's definitely not a definitive intervention. But I, I think back to a couple of patients who had had endovascular iliocable reconstructions where uh, an IVC filter was jailed. They were left with you know, bilateral stents. There was some concern or confusion based on the preoperative imaging as to whether or not both stents were patent. One was occluded, other was open, whether there was disease in the IVC stent. And so those are very different procedures in my mind from a workflow standpoint and potential reconstruction options. And particularly those patients who may have an IVC filter above an occluded iliofemoral stent. So I just share this because 
I don't want everybody to think that it has to be a one session go. You do have the opportunity, at least from the vasco-surgery perspective, of doing that diagnostic angiogram before you jump into your bypass another day. In this setting, it would be doing that venogram, kind of having the proof of concept that you can cross, that you can balloon a pathway, and coming back another day after having a different conversation with the patient about the chronicity or complexity of the reconstruction likelihood for patency in the future. That's interesting. I haven't uh, heard of folks staging it, but as you've explained it, it makes sense to do it that way for a lot of reasons. So you both have a fair amount of experience with the RevCore device. Any initial tips and tricks that you would want to share with early users? Stephen, let's start with you. I think one of the things that I would share is to be timid, but don't be afraid. As you get used to the device, really get an assessment of the feel, the pushability, and the haptics. And then at some point, if you find that you're not making progress, you can be more aggressive. You're dealing with a variable diameter revving system within a stented segment. And so you aren't likely to perf or to lacerate or to cause damage. And so that that anti-grade retrograde motion over a snare wire that's through and through the body really gives you kind of a next level ability to address the thrombus. And the, the other thing I would say is think about what your endpoint is. In an ideal world, I would be using the RevCore system to completely remove all of the material from within the stent. But there are situations where I'm just hoping for luminal gain. I know that I'm going to need to place another stent. I know that I'm going to need to extend an untreated segment of the external iliac vein out of the comet on row lane. And in that case, I think the technical endpoint that you're striving for is, is slightly altered. And so putting that in the context of what you're hoping to accomplish, I think gives people uh, a, a little bit more of, of that ability to feel like they can modulate their technical endpoint for the appropriateness of the case. Okay, Dr. Marina, do you have any tips and tricks for early users? Yeah, I agree. You want to start slow. You don't want to be too aggressive until you get a feel for it. But the device works really well. You can also use it in native veins, which I was a little hesitant at first, but now I've done almost 20 cases. And it works really well to, to get some of that chronic wool adherent thrombus, say, from the common femoral vein if you're trying to extend the stent down and you need a good landing zone. Something to watch out for, which I found is Pay close attention on fluoroscopy to see if there's a stent fracture, if some of the interstices of the stent are already fractured because you can get caught on that a little bit, especially with the wall stents when they're fractured. But you just take it nice and slow, and after you use it a few times, you'll get pretty comfortable. With it. It's pretty straightforward to use. That's fantastic. Sounds like a pretty low barrier to entry. Well, I think we've really discussed the RevCore device and how to use it in our practice and how to incorporate it. Do you feel like it's really changed your approach to venous stent thrombosis as compared to before you were using the device? Dr. Marino, let's start with you for this one. Yeah, for me, it, it 100% has changed the way I treat these because in the past, it was get across, try and make a channel with angioplasty. If it's acute, then you can do some kind of lytic therapy or thrombectomy. But for the chronic stuff, it was just getting across angioplasty and then relining, not really getting much luminal gain it's all about having a good lumen at the end, a good lumen size. And what this device allows allows you to do is to achieve that. So I, I use this in 100% of my stent occlusion cases now. Dr. Bramowitz, what would you say? It's definitely changed my workflow. I think there were a lot of patients that I had in surveillance patterns, not truly understanding 
what the implications of even a 50% IST lesion were or a 60 or 70% IST lesion were, even in the setting of a patient who may have more you know, ipsilateral swelling on the limb of that lesion. So this has given me an additional tool beyond just repeated balloon venoplasty for those patients where I find that they were predisposed to just recurrent IST. You know, I'd like to believe that hopefully within in the next few months, we'll have a very solidified algorithm for where it plays in. But I find myself reaching for the device more frequently as a tool for addressing the, the both chronic IST lesions and those patients who are completely occluded. I'll start with you, Dr. Abramowitz. What is your technique for crossing a chronically occluded venous stent? Yeah, you know, I think there's definitely a workflow that we go through. I'll start with um, telescoping or coaxial system. So uh, an 8 or an 11 French sheath in the popliteal, then using a 6 or a 7 angled destination sheath through that and a stiff angle glide wire. Uh, if that doesn't work, we'll try to be a little bit more aggressive with balloon expansion to center and increase pushability with conversion to either using a, a Chiba needle or different systems, even going so far as to using a metal cannula to help drive up and guide myself as I'm crossing through the stent. I find that really keeping intraluminal once you're curving in the pelvis can be a challenge for some of these really chronic and scarred included stents. Dr. Marino, what's your algorithm for getting crossing a venous occlusion? Yeah, similarly. So when I start out with these cases, I always put a nine French sheath in, and then through that sheath, I'll put in a six or, or a seven catheter or sheath to kind of guide myself. And I usually use a Navicross and the glide wire advantage. Start with the, the front end of the wire, but more often than not, you have to go to the, to the back end for a sharp recan. Sometimes I'll use a Triforce catheter. You make you know, one centimeter at a time, you get through it. Sometimes you have to use a, a balloon to make a little channel so you can kind of change your direction and have some room to change your direction. And in, in the more complex cases, I find that sometimes I have to use direct puncture into the stent if it extends down to the external or the common femoral and metal cannulas like the cannula from a transjugular liver biopsy set to kind of help you get across. For operators who maybe do this less frequently, what's the stopping point to say, I'm not going to cross this? Or do you guys cross every occlusion that you see in a venous stent? Dr. Marina, let's start with you. So I've been lucky enough so far that I've been able to cross most occlusions, but they can be challenging and they can take a really long time. I think a stopping point would be if you really perforate out or if you have some kind of injury to the adjacent artery, then I would stop. But you have to make sure you do a lot of obliques, you do intravascular ultrasound. We have cone beam CT available to us too, just in case we want to have some extra imaging. But if you use all the tools uh, available, you should be able to, to cross. Dr. Abramowitz, what's your take on that? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the other thing is just always going back to indications. The patient who has C3 disease or some some minimal swelling is very different from the patient who has an active ulcer or progressing hemosiderosis. And so those are the patients where I, I find myself much more aggressive and will then tolerate a perforation or even potentially the need to, I've only had to do it once or twice, but place a uh, covered stent in the arterial system after a perforation, but just to keep on persevering. Got it. Yeah. And then what's your follow-up for these patients after you've crossed and opened their occlusion? When do you see them in clinic and when do you do repeat imaging? Dr. Bramowitz, let's start with you. That's a great question. I tend to be very aggressive with these patients because once they occlude their stents, I find that I don't want to have to go through all the work I did uh, again. So 
Typically, I will bring the patient back for a duplex at one month. I keep them on an antiplatelet agent and lifelong anticoagulation. Uh, and then I will re-image them at three months, six months, and a year, and then keep them on a bi-yearly or a biannual surveillance plan. And usually one of the imaging studies is a duplex, and I will be very aggressive, and the other will be either an MR or a CT. And Dr. Marino, what's your follow-up algorithm? Yeah, I do pretty much almost the exact same thing. And if there's any questions, sometimes, depending on the patient body, have this if we can't get a good view of the stents, I'll, I'll get a CT venogram. But most often, it's just ultrasound. Similarly, one, six, 12 months. Sometimes I'll do three months if I'm really worried about the patient. Very cool. Do you have an anticoagulant of choice that you like for these patients, Dr. Marino? Yeah, so a lot of these patients have been on anticoagulation for a long time. For stents, I typically try and do Lovenox for at least a month in the beginning and then switch to a DOAC with antiplatelet therapy like Plavix and then lifelong aspirin if necessary. The patients who don't like giving themselves injections can be a problem, but usually they, they go on the DOAC. But I try and do Lovenox first, at least for a few weeks. And that seems to be a prevalent theory uh, amongst folks who do a lot of venous reconstruction, the, the month at least of Lovenox to help with anti-inflammatory effects and keeping the stents open. Dr. Bramowitz, what's your anticoagulation algorithm? Very similar. We do have issues sometimes with the insurance approval for a short-term anoxaparin or lovenox bridge. And in those cases, I'll take anything over or from nothing. So, But generally two weeks to four weeks of, of lovenox if I can get it and then transitioning to a, a DOAC. Very good. Well, thank you both for your introduction to this device. I look forward to trying it out myself. And it sounds like it's really been a, a game changer for venous stent thrombosis. Dr. Marino, thank you for being on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Dr. Abramowitz, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sublit. Administrative support provided by Jim Lui Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 